This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 187. I got to hang out with Megan from Feeding Littles to chat about common food challenges for toddlers. I actually just had a friend reach out and say, oh my goodness, it's like a switch flipped, my kiddo turned to, and all of a sudden, all the foods he loved, he will not eat, and it's only meatballs and waffles, (laughs) and specifically, party cake waffles. We have all navigated this with kiddos where they love this food, and the next day, they cannot stand it, and so how do we navigate this, Jazz? You submitted your questions and I got to throw them at Megan one by one. I'm so jazzed to share this episode with you. All right, folks, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today I get to hang out with Megan from Feeding Littles. Feeding Littles is an organization I followed for a long time and a go-to spot. You hear us reference a bunch for food stuff for your tiny humans. And today I get to hang out with the number one gal. Well, I guess there's two of you. Judy yeah. should get some shout out too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and but today we get to hang out and talk about some common food challenges. So hi Megan, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Can you share with folks a bit about like your background and kind of what brought you to this work? Sure. So I am a registered dietitian nutritionist. I have been doing this um, as an an RD. I've been working in nutrition and research and public health my whole career. I used to think it was a short amount of time, but the numbers are getting up there now as I (laughs) keep getting older. Um, I live in Arizona and I have two girls. One is almost eight and one is five. And I had always worked in intuitive eating and kind of worked with private clients on healing their relationship with food. And I wanted to somehow figure out how to bring that message to a larger audience 
um, but I always thought it would kind of be with adults. And when my, when I was pregnant with my first baby, I was nine months pregnant and I got laid off from my job at a startup and it was traumatizing to say the least. And I had no idea what I would do and I couldn't afford to stay home. And I started just seeing clients and trying to piecemeal some consulting while she was always with me. So I would teach classes with her like in the ergo carrier. And I was at a birth center in central Phoenix and they said, do you want to teach a class on infant feeding? And I said, sure. You know, I worked in that my whole career and they said, well, can you teach it about baby led weaning? And I said, I have no idea what that's about. And so I did a whole bunch of research on my own and looked at, you know, the very limited data that was available at the time. And I did it, started doing it with my daughter and it was really a fun process for us. And so I started teaching classes locally and just, you know, tiny little mom groups and such. And then everyone said, you know, what, that's great, but what do we do about toddlers now? We took your class, they were doing great. And now they're one and a half, two, and suddenly things are different. And I knew what to put on the plate, but I didn't really know how to encourage them to eat it. And around the same time, my friend had come back from a trip to Colorado and she said, you need to meet this woman, Judy. And my friend's son was Judy's client when he was alive. He had passed away from a terminal um, genetic disease called SMA. At the time it was terminal. Now there's actually treatment for it. But she was his feeding therapist when he was alive. And she was the only person that treated him like a real baby and came into their home and didn't treat it like a hospice situation. It was bright and trying to figure out fun ways to interact with him and kind of have him do baby things as an occupational therapist and a feeding therapist. And they just adored her. My friend adored her and said, you have to meet her. And so we met and we started working. We tried to figure out how I could consult with her for a while and realized that would probably be not in my financial favor because I would probably owe her billions of dollars at this point. But um, she, we formed Feeding Littles. We named it off of, after the name of our Facebook group, which was just called Feeding Littles Group. I don't know where we even came up with that. And we eventually released a toddler course online and then an infant course online. And now we have a few different digital products and all these other fun projects we're working on. But it kind of just started off, you know, this kind of whim of right place, right time. We both knew we wanted to do something to help more people than our private clients. And baby Jack stepped in and introduced us. Yeah, sweet. I just love the focus on like treating kids as humans. We often refer to them as tiny humans because I think that it's huge that we recognize that they're humans. Right. <laughs> and I'm so, it's so like heartwarming to hear that like that's what your friend saw in Judy first was just right. that she treated her kid like a human. Right. Not like a dying child, which is yeah. sadly what he was. I mean, it was like, where do we see the life here? Yeah. I love where that. Where can we celebrate where he is now? Um, and that's, you know, with food is so complicated because it affects, I mean, it's, it's our culture. It's our history. We have memories around it. You smell something and it reminds you of something specific. And it's just so much more than like, the sum of its nutrients and how, what you put on the fork and put in your mouth. And once you become a parent, you start to have to address your own food issues and it looks you straight in the face because now you're modeling for your child what you hope they will feel about food. And that makes you realize your, your issues might be, you might have some issues with it, you know, and that's really hard. 
Totally. Well, reparenting is not something new to this crew. Uh, it's right up our alley. It's something that I think in parenthood you're always doing, whether it's related to food or anything else. You're like, oh, I have feelings about this. I didn't know until this moment when right. my child is doing it. And I think it's such a key thing with food to note that it is it is so much more than the nutrients that are in them, that it's a cultural experience. It's, you know, when I need comfort food, like I want grilled cheese and tomato soup and I don't give a flying care what the nutrients are in grilled cheese and tomato soup. Like that's what I want in that comfort moment, you know? This year, my grandfather passed and just like the food that was around, it's like that comfort home food. And I was just like noticing that and how all of a sudden anyone's relationship to like what is in this food or am I eating enough X, Y, and Z was not present when we were like hanging out after the funeral. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, this, the food was about the gathering and the culture. And so I think when we're looking at food as a whole, I love that you brought that up, that it's, and it's complicated because it's one of the things that we can measure right from the get-go, right? I'm presently pregnant. Uh, when this airs, I will have a tiny human in oh, tow, but um, I'm currently 34 weeks pregnant and I am, it's already something we're measuring, right? We're already looking at like, what's my weight throughout pregnancy? How big do we think this babe is? And then once they come out, one of the first things we start measuring is what's their weight? What are they eating? How much are they eating? And so then of course, down the road, that doesn't just go away. It's something that we then are, that's so ingrained in parenthood and can come up in a variety of ways that I think we'll dive into today. One of the biggest questions that I said, like, hey, we're going to interview Megan from Feeding Littles. Like, what questions do you have? The, like, one that came in the most frequently was how much and how frequently should my toddler or an infant eat? (laughs) People want this, like, quantifiable. (laughs) So do you want me to to answer that? Sure, yeah. Okay, so, um, and we're talking more solid. Are we talking solid foods, like Mm -hmm. solid feedings? Okay, So I'm hoping that you guys are all figuring out the milk situation. And that question is even very complicated when it comes to bottle feeding, breastfeeding, right? Um, Because everyone does it a little differently. When it comes to solids, we generally recommend at least one solid meal a day starting around six months and working up to three solid meals by nine months. That is a general recommendation if your child is sick or if they're teething or you are, you know, you get to the dinner table and they freak out because they're upset or whatever. You don't have to do that meal. That's the nice thing about infancy is, you know, we rely more on milk and food is more about exposure, learning. It's all about building up those skills as they get older and older. Um, So the reason we want to emphasize those meals though is because without practice, it's hard for them to learn those skills and for them to, they're kind of in this nice little window at that age where they're more open-minded to things. We want to catch them so that they get that sensory development, oral motor, they learn how to use their tongue, they learn how to use their hands, um, and they also are a little bit more open-minded about flavors. Uh, Into toddlerhood, in general, we recommend three meals and then adding a few snacks a day as well. Now, this might be a little bit interesting if you're still if you're still breastfeeding. Some people are breastfeeding into toddlerhood, so sometimes the breastfeed will replace a snack, or sometimes your nap schedule just kind of precludes you from doing a snack. So, like if your baby, your you know 14 month old is still taking two naps, well, you might really not you know they wake up at seven, they have a snack at, or they have breakfast at you know eight, 
well, suddenly they're going down for their nap at nine. It's like, doesn't, there's not a lot of time sometimes for extra snacks and that's okay. All that matters is, you know, are they getting enough throughout the day to support growth and, um, and development and, and are they staying hydrated? That's really what we're looking at. So, um, in general in toddlerhood and, and really all the way up, it's kind of like how an adult oftentimes eats three meals and a few snacks in there for many families, that's two to three snacks a day. We want them to have food, access to food every like two to four hours, depending on, you know, when they're napping and such. I think it's so helpful. The like general two to four hour range. I also found I, my master's is in early childhood and I worked in childcare for a while and infant toddler is my jam. And I, it was wild all the time. I'd be like, Hey folks, if you can, can you send in more food? And they're like, how does that child eat so much food? Mm -hmm. They're so tiny. Mm -hmm. I think it can be really hard to wrap our heads around. Like they're, they're hungry again. Do you know what they just ate? And have you seen the size of their body? (laughs) The amount of food that a toddler can eat, I think can feel pretty wild. Well, especially at at childcare because they eat differently there than home Mm -hmm. and parents kids are notorious for being very inconsistent. So they might have one good meal a day where they eat really well at that meal and then they like taper off as the day goes on. Or um, if they're in school or childcare, they can either eat really well or really not well there. And they tend to need to make it up at other times. It's really frustrating for parents because they'll serve them something at dinner and the kid won't touch it, but they send it leftover to school and they eat it so well. But I think explaining why just briefly can help understand that. First off, in a classroom setting, they're eating with their peers. They're sitting oftentimes at a little table where they can see everyone. And not that we need to have a little table at our house to eat you know, for our kids, but just understand that it's a social experience for them. It's fun. The pressure's off. So nobody's sitting there staring at them and you know, encouraging them, making them take bites. They're looking at their peers and modeling what their peers are doing. So they see their peers eating something and now suddenly they want to try it too. And they're also in a better like regulated state usually at that time of day, they oftentimes aren't as, you know, tired or cranky. They're kind of in a good mood because they've been having fun. By the time they come home, think about it, you know, they've saved up all of their emotional tension just for, for us. They might be over hungry and they're snacking right before dinner. So then they don't have an appetite for it, or they might just be so tired that they're not interested at all. And it's very normal for toddlers to only have two good meals a day. Very normal. And when I, I shouldn't even say good, two decent meals a day. And I, when I say that, I mean like where they actually eat mm-hmm. something versus nothing at all. It's very common for them to not do three meals. Totally. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out. And it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for me, Levine, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns, and it came in the mail, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to wear this for myself every day. Their Lux women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical-free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin, too. And I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com village and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com village, promo code VILLAGE. And I think also for us in the childcare side, like it, this is all that's for lunch. Like there isn't another option. There is, there's literally no like, okay, we'll swap it out for something in the fridge. This is it. And they learn that pretty quickly. And so even if they didn't want it for dinner the night before, if they knew like, well, I get a snack after dinner anyway in a little bit, whatever. They know at school that's not happening. You know, like they learn the rhythm and the routine and that like, whatever's out there for lunch and everything served, at least in my experience, everything was served at the same time. So, and, and you're right. No one's standing over them. It's like, great. You don't want to eat your cheese today. You don't eat your cheese today. (laughs) You know, like that's fine. And generally they'll eat it again later. And we would find this one girl just came to my head who was one of my earlier nappers. She would be like the first kid we'd put down and she was on, they were on one nap at this point and she, we did first lunch, second lunch. So I would do like offer their lunch to them. And then some kids like aren't going to eat before they go down very much, but then they would wake up ready to rock. (laughs) And, And then we'd offer to them at that point. And they're like, yeah, ready to go. I was literally too tired to eat (laughs) beforehand and just letting that be okay. You know, I think again, with the pressure of what's their weight gain, what percentile are they that were, it's so ingrained from such uh, from the beginning for us as parents to be like, okay, but are they getting enough that there's so much fear that we are like standing over them are are nervous if they're not eating what we think they should eat, or maybe they eat less at this meal today than they did yesterday and now we're wondering why and is it something we need to fix and there's just so much pressure I think that it's is there as well that I don't think any of us want to put on our kids at home but that comes with the nature of the measuring of the weight from the beginning it's so ingrained well and if I can just kind of speak to that about how we know our kids are getting enough because I think that's kind of a natural segue um Especially, this is especially tough if you if you had a um, a tinier peanut 
child and people constantly comment on in their size and everywhere you go, they say, oh, are they only, you know, they're only one, no, they're two, you know, there's so much comparison. I experienced that on the other end of the scale with my very tall children, you know, um, it's, it's hard when people are commenting about your, your kid's size, because we take it very personally that how our children eat, we feel is a reflection of how we parent and the, if we're doing enough and are we good enough? And we sometimes have to realize that we have to step back a little bit. Your child's body is kind of predetermined through their genetics as to how they're going to grow. And there's some variation based on environment, but there's a very strong pull within them to, to have a predetermined growth pattern. And a lot of parents worry because they use the growth chart or they feel that the growth chart is almost like this grade report, Mm. like, for them, like a report card mm-hmm. that they see this number and they think it should be something. I've even heard pediatricians say, well, I want my, my clients all at the 50th percentile. It doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the, the growth pattern, like our growth charts reflect where your child's growth is in a trajectory compared to children, their age, like mass populations. It doesn't take into account their own genetic or even like um, cultural history, where their parents are from and what size, you know, their grandparents and all of their ancestors are from. It doesn't take into account body composition per se, like, you know, if they're really muscular, it's just a very um, general look at how they're growing compared to what we think they probably could be growing at. And that's what, what we want providers to use it as one tool not the whole tool. So they look at if they're on a third percentile, they expect a child to continue to be growing at the third percentile. That's probably where they're going to stay. If we start to see some pretty big dips and, you know, or hikes, then we start to evaluate what's happening in the environment. Is there something that's changing? Are they normalizing for their genetics? Some kids come out really small, but they have very large parents, tall parents, and suddenly they're, they, they shoot up. And most, you know, experienced providers will, will know, like, that's what we expect them to be given what their genetic path is, or it kind of goes the opposite. A lot of times they, they're really large, larger on the scale as newborns, if you, if you will, I don't like using these words to describe people, but they come out, you know, um, like 90th percentile, but they come from small people and Mm -hmm. they, their genetics will normalize. So I encourage people to not use the growth chart as the only indicator of how you're doing. It's not the only indicator. It's, it's just so much more complicated than that. And to work with your provider, if your provider's not worried, I don't want you to be worried either. There's nothing to say that your kid has to hit a certain number. The 50th percentile isn't the goal. The goal is predictable growth over time. So kind of tying that back to what we talked about, people worry, are they getting enough? Are they getting enough? Well, if your child's growing as we expect and they have good output, you know, they're going to the bathroom, you know, urinating five to six times a day um, at least, and they're hopefully pooping at least once a day, then we kind of, and the, the, the growth is where we sort of expect it to be. That's how we know they're getting enough. And sometimes it seems like they're living on air. And sometimes it seems like they're eating literally everything in sight. And that is normal for them. They will go with these, with these phases. So um, try not to look at like one meal or even one day, we look at a whole week, like how, how is it going over a whole week for them? Oh, I think that's also important. So much came up for me. I think, first of all, that's how we all are. Like, I don't yeah. eat the same amount in a no. day, day to no. day or meal to meal. Um, and I think giving ourselves grace across the board. I have a twin niece and nephew who one was uh, born seven pounds, two ounces, and the other was 314. Wow. And she has been a little peanut her whole life. And wow. I 
have, I'm so grateful that my brother and sister-in-law have the pediatrician that they have. There was no pressure. It was just like, yeah, she's probably going to live in this first percentile, first percentile, like literally a very tiny little nugget her whole life. And that's fine. As long as she's continuing to grow and develop, that's fine. And she learned from a very early age, like late infancy, that when she was done with what was on her tray, she would put it right on her brother's and peace out. She's like, I don't want this anymore. I'm I'm good. I know that you'll eat it. He was like, this is a win-win. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, and that scenario is really tough because when you have twins, Mm -hmm. such comparison comparison is constant. Mm -hmm. People expect twins to literally be the exact same person. It's so strange. It's so strange. Yeah, for sure. So what about for folks if they are worried that their child isn't eating enough volume or variety? Let's go into both of those. You touched on volume. And what if they're like, yeah, no, my kid's not doing that. Yeah. Well, that's a really big question. That's a really big question because we have, you know, entire courses to help address this. But first off, I want you to, I want people to talk to their providers. I want, I, I, sometimes we have to tease apart is the worry coming from our own issues, maybe, you know, in some cultures, parents are very authoritarian with how they approach food. And so, you know, you might have auntie or grandma in your ear. He needs to eat more. She needs to eat more. She doesn't look, you know, chubby enough. She doesn't look this enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but that might not, not actually be the reality based on like what your provider would see as their medical picture, like their growth picture. So first and foremost, if you really, you know, if, if it's worrying you, if it's bothering you, talk to your provider. And that oftentimes can really help us, <laughs> help us kind of put this in perspective. Addressing picky eating isn't as simple. I can't just tell you like, a, I'll tell you, a, but I'm not, I'm not um, naive enough to say that this is the everything. I, I do want to just give you a few tips. First and foremost, if you have any worries about how your child's chewing, swallowing, um, how they, if they can't touch certain things, they're really struggling with like their sensory system or their oral motor system. Maybe they really, really struggled, you know, with choking on bottles and all these kind of things. That's something to definitely bring up to your, to your provider. Cause they might not be realizing if, if it's still carrying on. There are a lot of feeding issues that need further evaluation and further therapy that, you know, just offering them some techniques like for picky eating won't help. So make sure that you're, you're, you're kind of communicating. And if you're not getting support from your provider, get another opinion. It's okay. And it's also okay to get an evaluation from like a feeding therapist to see if where they're at is not where they probably could be. That's, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. We get really insecure. I think about, you know, like if your child got an injury and they had to go to physical therapy, that's something that a lot of parents are familiar with and they don't feel any shame about. It's like, well, of course I, everyone goes to PT when they need help with moving their body. And after an injury, if your child has an oral aversion or sensory issues and they need to go to feeding therapy, suddenly people feel like it's, they did something wrong. And that's not the case. It's usually that your child just needs extra support with us, with some of their systems support that nobody, no parents know how to do. We don't know how to do that. So I hope you guys can drop some of that shame about that. So say your child's just not eating super well, a few quick tips. First off, one thing that people kind of overlook, make sure they're eating with you. <laughs> and you know, that sounds so basic and people are like, well, of course, duh, lady, I know family meals, but actually make sure you're eating together. People will, will put down the food for them as we're getting everything else ready and kind of expect them to eat and even wait, you know, eat and maybe continue to eat. But by the time we sit down, they're over it. Well, 
believe it or not, I know most of you probably would kill for, you know, a silent meal by yourself, but eating is actually pretty boring. And for a child sitting there by themselves at their tray, when it seems like everything else is happening is not that entertaining. They might, they might shove down a few bites as, you know, enough to not be really hungry anymore. And then it's like up to play because they're alone. Um, So if we can sit with them, even if you're not eating at the time, say it's snack and you're just not hungry. Can you sit down whenever you can with them? Maybe you change the scenery and do it on the floor like a picnic, or maybe you just have a cup of coffee or tea or something that you're enjoying with them. The more you can eat together and model that eating for them, the more um, they're going to know what to do. It's just a lot more positive for them. Another thing, um, try to lay off the pressure. And we've kind of alluded to this already. I like to kind of tell parents, like, imagine if you, you know, you came over to my house and I served you a delicious meal, but then I stared at you, stared at you as you took every single bite. And And said three more bites. Yeah. And then I told you, I mean, think about that. First of all, what if you were full? And I said, you need three more bites and you were physically full. Imagine how yucky that could feel. Like, but I'm, I'm, I'm full. I don't want three more bites. No, you have to take three more bites and think about it. It's kind of arbitrary. Where are these three bites coming from? Why do we think that they need three more bites? It's, it's, it's kind of like this. We want to have this sense of control because we are worried. It comes from a good place, but how do we know that their body even needs three more bites? And if it doesn't, and if they're full, what are we teaching them? We are saying, we're teaching them, ignore what your body says. I know, I know better. Yep. That carries forward as they get older. Yeah. We don't want them to ignore what their body says. We don't want them to ignore that feeling in their gut that this is off. This is wrong. We don't want them to ignore, I'm a dancer and my ankle really, really, really hurts. And my coach tells me to keep going, but my ankle really, really hurts. Like we want them to listen to those signals. Our bodies are built in this beautiful way that they tell us when something's wrong and it's our job to listen to it. So if we can hold off the pressure a little bit and remember that we wouldn't like the same approach ourselves. So it's important, you know, just because they're kids doesn't mean that they, they deserve any less respect in that regard. If we can remember that they, you know, they're great self-regulators as long as they don't have, you know, major medical or feeding issues going on. The, the irony with that is that when they feel like they have control over what goes in their mouth, they tend to eat better. <laughs> they yeah. eat more because they're not fighting us anymore. Totally. Well, and then they feel connected too. I think so yeah. much of mealtime, you're talking about eating with them and, and modeling it. But I think also like the connection component, we know that as humans, we all want to feel connected yes. and that's not that also applies to our tiny humans. And when it becomes this battle, we're just living in a place of disconnection where there will be no collaboration within disconnection. And so, yeah, I I think that when we can see it as a way to connect and be like in community with our kids, it's such a game changer for the collaboration component too. And I think, you know, we got a bunch of questions about boundaries and I think this plays in there too. Uh, But I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, do you guys practice specific boundaries around like how long a kid has to sit at the table or if they have to try anything? Like, are there certain boundaries that are like, yep, these are always things that we practice or, or these are things we never enforce as a boundary? So so you probably appreciate this. I don't like the word never or always. (laughs) Those words are so (laughs) tricky because I think 
they impart judgment and assumption that I know somebody else's family situation better mm-hmm. than they do. I will say that we don't recommend forcing them to take bites in general or that they have to try something. Um, actually, we really don't recommend forcing them to take bites. That's probably one of those nevers. They're never. <laughs> like, and, and, and I don't know how much you have seen from people, but in my role, like we've seen videos and such of like actual force feeding and it's really hard to watch. Yeah. And again, coming from a good place, coming from fear, coming from, I, I'm trying to be a good parent. I don't want my kid to stop growing. And a lot of times we get put pressured from our, you know, whatever you need to do, you need to get them to eat. You know, that's kind of the the words Mm -hmm. we'll get. I, I, as far as sitting at the table, we recommend being realistic. First off, if you put the food down, I'm sorry, if you have the kid in their chair before you put the food down, the clock is started. Totally. You, good are, <laughs> you are already losing time right there, friends. Yeah, and yeah. you might probably have already experienced this. Like they only have so much time that they want to be contained. And again, think about where they're coming from. It's kind of boring, right? I have to eat all these times a day. I have to sit here. I really, really, really worried about my blocks. Like I just had to leave them. I don't know what's happening to them. I was getting really good at stacking them. And now I have to do this thing I don't really want to do right now. I'll give you a few minutes. That's all you got. Yeah. They're, they're not trying to be awful. They're not trying to disrespect all the time that you spent in the kitchen. They just have priority of play and learn. That's, that's what they want to be doing right now. Totally. And their so, nervous system isn't designed to sit still for a long time. No, no. And that's why they get so like motor driven when they mm-hmm. eat. That's why they, they're smashing, squishing, dropping, throwing because they like to move. And so, um, we recommend when, when it's coming, when it comes to like sitting at the table as they get older, of course, like then you can start to implement some of those things about respect and manners about, you know, your family's your expectations. Like my kids are five and eight. Like they know that we don't get up from the table until everyone's done eating, but they're cognitively able to handle that because they can talk and we, you know, we converse and that's like a fun thing for us. And it's just what we've always, we've kind of expected of them as they've gotten older, but it's not what we expected of them when they were little. So a toddler, like a one-year-old, two-year-old, like five to 10 minutes might be all you get. And so we recommend, you know, making sure that the food is ready when you put them in their tray. So literally don't put them down. Don't get them in there until you've got the food and everyone's food is ready. And that takes a little bit of planning, but it's going to make it less stress, like stressful for you. And then realize again, you don't have that much time. If your child is getting bored or kind of seems uninterested. This is where, you know, we say r- routine to soothe, novelty to stimulate, and novelty can be a huge um, tool in your toolkit with kids. And it, it works with play, it works with everything. And actually learning about this from Judy has helped me in general parenting all the time, because if things, you know, if I'm getting annoyed or upset or my child isn't, you know, getting into the car or doing these things, suddenly involving some sort of novelty, something you new and unique, like okay, we got to, guess what? You know, we do a lot of, there's spies, there's spies everywhere. We have to, we have to hustle. We have to crawl. So sometimes we'll see us literally crawling to the door, trying to get out, but it, not, it motivates my kids because it's different and fun. Yeah. And sometimes they need that with food. They're, it's the same plate. It's the same food we had last week. It's I, again, I have my blocks. I'm really in, interested in my blocks right now, but if you can bring clay into meals, suddenly you're kind of meshing their worlds you're making it a little bit more interesting. And I'm not saying guys that you have to like build a castle every time you have dinner or that you have to be like a Pinterest, like perfect, everything shaped like a frog. Like, no, all you, all we say is involving one little fun thing. If your child is starting to, you know, they don't seem interested or they're not having a great time. So that might mean you introduce a new fork 
or maybe you, um, if it's like something that you're a little bit, you think they're not going to really want to eat, give them a little cup and say, can you scoop this into the cup? Because again, they're motor driven. They want to practice their, their, um, their new skills. So if you're eating like a soup or something and you have a two-year-old and you, soup hasn't always gone that well for you, give them a little cup. Can you put it into your own little soup cup? Do you want to drink it from your cup? And it's funny how kids are a lot more likely to do something when, um, when it's approached like that versus like eat your soup, you have to try your soup, you know, if they get to make the choice and they, they feel like it's fun and they're involved, suddenly it's a much different process for them. It's just like when you're cooking and you're making the recipe and you're tasting along the way, that's a little less stressful for you because you're, you know, it's, it's not this big expectation that you have to eat the whole meal, but you're, ta- you're taking little tastes. By the time you get to the food, it's, it's not so scary because you've interacted with it. Same thing with kids. Once they start interacting with it and they realize, Hey, this is, this is not scary. This is kind of fun. They're more likely to put it in their mouth. Yeah. I love this so much. Somebody just this morning in our membership had posted about playfulness in parenting and she was sharing, she was like, I kept getting stuck in getting my kid to bath time. And I like was finding myself feeling like I'm trying to hold space for her feelings. I'm trying to do all these things. And actually I'm just annoyed that she's not going to the bath. And she was like, I paused and I regulated. And when I did that, I was able to see like, oh, there were all these bids for connection, but they were happening through play. And I was in like an all business mindset of like, we're done with play. We're going to the bath. And she was like, when I brought play into getting to the bath and then we were in the bath and she was a mermaid and we were telling stories about her being a mermaid. We were able to wash her hair. She was like, it was the most peaceful bath time we've had in a while because I played with her, but I think it's something for us as adults too, that we do have separate where we're like, I will play in this space and then I will be done playing here. And for kids, it's all about play. (laughs) And And especially with food, because we've been taught, don't play with your food. Don't play at the dinner table. You have to be polite. Don't play with your food, but it's totally developmentally inappropriate. (laughs) Totally. And guys, they're not going to be throwing their food and, you know, I'm not saying that like, Let's encourage them to fling their food across the right. <laughs> room um, and purposely be wasteful. But it's more of like the interaction that allows them to be curious and allows them to, to kind of approach the table with like, what, what's going to happen now? This is kind of fun. This is different and unique. Oh, and I can actually enjoy the food as I eat it. That builds on itself as they get older. Mm-hmm. And then they really do. They learn to sit at the table and be polite and use their, you know, napkin and fork and converse and talk. But even now at my kids' age, we still have fun. Yeah. We still have fun when we eat. And I think people kind of get worried, like, what, you know, are they going to be this, like, I don't know, what they assume they're going to turn into some sort of, like, you know, caveman-style person that's standing (laughs) on the table or something. They won't. You're going to keep modeling what you want them to do. But what's so cool about it is it also, the playfulness makes you have more fun. Mm-hmm. those mirror neurons <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Have a good time because it's like I mean all of us there's you know a child inside of all of us right and we remember how fun it is to do certain things so it kind of takes you back to that and you know we talked a little bit about how sometimes we have to parent ourselves through this a lot of our the what, number one like like I think email that I get is you have taught me how to reapproach food mm-hmm. like I am now healing myself not even necessarily a child in myself, but the me now in myself, uh, because I'm, I'm showing it to my child and I'm kind of rewriting that script for them. And now it's kind of, I didn't even realize it, but it's happening in me too. 
Yeah. Um, and that's really cool because that's, you know, what we, people always say it's, we, you don't just talk about kid food. I'm like, no, because it, it's really about all of us and how we eat and how we right. approach our, our bodies and meals and food and how we feel about ourselves. It's way more than just what we're feeding our kids. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And when we're playing, you know, you're saying you're having fun. We're also coming back to that nervous system. We're relaxing the nervous system. We are in a calmer space. They are in a calmer space when they're playing than if it's a stressful environment and we're producing adrenaline and cortisol. Yeah, it, it makes total sense. And I think it's key to note that you can set boundaries around play and that it doesn't mean as you said that people are going to be flinging food across the room like we can have a boundary around that we can set up boundaries around ways that we can or can't play at the dinner table or with food it doesn't have to be just like full permissive free-for-all right Uh, and I mean another boundary is you know sometimes people kids get really into it and they want to stay there and keep playing and we usually say after about a half an hour if your child isn't eating sufficiently we're kind of at that point we're losing out like that it's not it's not gonna be productive anymore and if they really need more than a half an hour to get a meal down then we need to start evaluating why yeah, so that's helpful. Uh, if it's something like they're struggling to chew or they're really they, they're, they're they're having problems picking things up or touching things and stuff then we need to you know maybe evaluate that a little bit more but it's okay to hold to hold that line as well um it's also okay to hold the line that you know we we had dinner and you had familiar food on the plate and you had things that they liked and they didn't want to eat. And then they asked for a snack afterwards. It's okay to say, no, it's not snack time anymore. We just had dinner. You know, mm-hmm. those are some, those are some of the boundaries that we teach in our courses with that grace that, you know, okay. Sometimes a kid just needs to eat and go to bed, have a, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like they're having a really bad day and they were crying and like, whatever, they didn't want any of the food because it was awful. And now it's like, I want Cheez-Its. And it's like, whatever, have Cheez-Its and go to bed. <laughs> but if it's becoming a pattern, if it's becoming something that they're always doing, then that's when we start to, to try to figure out where, where we can draw that line because kids do learn. Okay. If I, I don't need to eat anything on my plate, if I'm always going to get a snack five minutes afterwards. Totally. And there's, I think, most of that is our stuff that comes up with like, okay, well, they didn't eat. And so now I have a fear of what's going to happen right. next or if they're getting right. enough. And so I'm going to give them the snack. I, I like that you noted there's gray area there um, yeah. of like, sometimes it's our mental health. of Like, yeah. oh, I'll take this snack so that you'll go to bed because my day needs to end. But well, them too. It's sometimes a, a bad day. They just had a rough day and like they didn't eat because the circumstances were, I mean, before, when we used to go out and do things, I remember every time we would go to a birthday party, like in the evening, my kids would be, come home ravenous. And I'm like, dude, they had pizza. They had like all the things. Why didn't you eat the things? And they're pretty consistent eaters, but they were having too much fun. They mm-hmm. always eat notoriously terribly at birthday parties as in like, they just don't touch the food and totally. because I'm having a good time. So I'm not going to be like, Nope. Hey, we didn't have food. That's your problem because the situation is, <laughs> I know that they're not going to eat well. So I anticipate when we get home, here's a peanut butter sandwich, go to bed, you know? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I love that. Finding that gray area and noting that if it's a pattern or a habit, that's when we dive deeper. That's so helpful. Megan, thank you for hanging out with me. Where can folks find your courses and follow along, continue to learn from you guys? Sure. So we have an infant course for babies that are learning how to self feed. And so that applies to people that want to start with baby led weaning, but also people that have done spoon feeding and want to transition to some finger foods and self feeding. And then we also have a toddler course that we're actually rewriting to be basically ages one through 10. So it really does apply to a wide range because it's really the same concepts 
it's nothing dramatic that changes as they get older. You just apply them a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so they can all be found at feedinglittles.com. We do have a, a larger free Facebook group called Feeding Littles Group. Um, if you do purchase our courses, then you get to be part of our um, clients only group on Facebook. And then we can also be found at Feeding Littles on Instagram. Right. Perfect. Thank you. You're the bomb. Sure. Uh, yeah. Thanks for hanging out with me. This is rad. And I feel like we got some good tangible things for folks. Good. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so, S-E-W. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.